Campsite Media. The Bench. My grandmother's old neighborhood is now gated off. This wasn't directly because of her murder. The gates went up several years later. And there were other notable neighborhood break-ins. But I've been told her death started the conversations. Presh had loved the openness. I can imagine what she'd say about a physical divider cordoning off the Delta's already self-contained society. Another bee in her bonnet, I'm sure. But it felt appropriate that in order to interview Gaden Metcalf, a doyen of this Delta society, we had to cross this barrier, meaning we had to follow another car in because we didn't have the gate code. Gaden lives in a divinely eclectic home. Outside, Ivy climbs the red brick. Inside, gorgeous hardwood, sterling silver accents, and more animal hides and taxidermy than a natural history museum. As she opens the door, she tells us she's just come back from the beauty salon. Look, I got all puffed puffed and pressed for you all. Beautiful. Her white hair is pulled back into a small ponytail and tied with a black bow. The effect is both Park Avenue matron and revolutionary war hero. We set up in a small library off the kitchen. As we take our seat, she offers us cookies on a plate that she sets down next to a taxidermied otter's paw, which is next to a hunting knife made from a deer's hoof, and across from a framed bat, a gift from her kids. Over to your left is uh, a bear skull. I've known Gaiden my whole life, but this isn't a social call. I've come to see her for her expertise. She's written three books on Southern culture, weddings, motherhood, and more to the point, funerals. Being dead is no excuse. The official Southern Lady's Guide to Hosting the Perfect Funeral. Well, it's a, it's a personal experience. Uh, the food, the whiskey, You need to read my book because we have the top 10 funeral foods listed. You know, fried chicken, stuffed eggs, pimento cheese, tenderloin, tomato aspic, little rolls, homemade mayonnaise. We have more linens and more china and more silver in the Mississippi Delta, and you're going to put Aunt Tootsie down with paper towels and paper napkins? Get out of here. It's her last big party. Let's make it nice. I will have to say that the landscape of funerals has changed since we wrote that book. The nice way of dying and the the traditional way of dying has kind of gone by the wayside a little bit. There was the one woman who wanted her casket adorned with costume jewelry. And, of course, all the issues brought on by the newfound popularity of cremation. One of my mother's friends died, and... And she wanted to be very unusual for an old lady to be cremated. They wanted to be cremated. This was not the problem, however. The problem was the general lack of experience among the elderly crowd with cremations. So when they go to spread the ashes, Gaydon says to her horror, these little old ladies all plunge their hands right into the urn and tossed fistfuls of Bay's cremains into Deer Creek. I almost fainted. I said, thank God they've already had lunch. We'd be digesting bay. If I had known, no, I would have had a little spoon in there for them to toss bay. But that I don't know, they nice. just reached in there and hummed it in the creek. Funerals bring out the best in people, and weddings bring out the worst. 
There always ends up having a good time at the funeral. There just so happens to be a body there. You know, and we're a small enough community that everyone, you know, everyone comes to your funeral. Well, almost everyone. This was the morning after I'd been told by Charlotte in no uncertain terms that my uncle was not to attend her funeral. But accusations of murder do cloud family dynamics. Gaydon, of course, has heard all the local rumors, including the rumors around Precious' death. There's nothing people in the Delta like better than a good story. So, you know, there's the real story, the story you read in the paper, and then the story that we all make up. There are three sides to every story in the Delta. <laughs> so, I hope you set the record straight on all of this. Yeah, I hope I do, too. I, we all heard that the people from Jackson came from the crime unit and threw powder all over and ruined all the fingerprints. I that was a story that we heard. That they ruined the fingerprints. Yeah, that they threw all the wrong stuff on all the fingerprints at the house and huh. on the car. For the record, I haven't found any evidence this happened, but I'm not surprised these stories circulated after the murder. Rumors are often the only thing we have to fill in the gaps of an unfinished story. In fact, it's people trying to understand why this murder has remained unsolved that led to what is probably the strangest rumor of them all. The one I've heard a lot. That the reason Richard has never been arrested isn't because there's no actual evidence, but because my family asked police not to arrest him until Charlotte had died. Was it, who was saying we gotta wait till, you know, Your we family. gotta wait your but family. my family. Yeah, your family. That's interesting. Out of consideration that this would, if, you know, the issue were pursued, would just kill her. They said, you know, not until she's dead can we pursue this. Well, I mean, there's life after death because that lady's still living. Of course, this rumor is absurd. It was my family members who told police to look at Richard and they've kept that ember burning for nearly 20 years. I explained this to Gaydon, but she remained skeptical. A good Southern family, she says, protects its own. Later, as the conversation drifts to other local murders, Gaydon mentions Ruth Thompson Dickens, the woman who killed her mother with the garden shears. It's been over 70 years, and Ruth's relatives still don't like to talk about it. That's how families handle scandals, she says. Very protective of their family. My dear, look at your own family, not wanting to say anything about you-know-who. It is a poor bird who fouls its own nest. Uh-oh, well, I might be doing that. From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Witnessed, Devil in the Ditch, Episode 7, A Poor Bird. I'm Larison Campbell. I've got pretty good kids, but a couple years ago, one of them started trying to sneak out late at night. But he never got away with it. You know why? Because we have Simply Safe home security. As soon as he cracked a window, we knew. Of course, that's not why we got our Simply Safe system. In fact, we've had Simply Safe longer than we've had kids, and we got it for the same reason you should too peace of mind. Simply Safe is whole home security. 
Sure, it'll detect break-ins or attempted breakouts, but there's also sensors for fires, floods, carbon monoxide, even breaking glass, all professionally monitored 24-7. The system is a snap to set up, there's no contracts, and there's a 60-day money-back guarantee. Don't love it? Send it back for a full refund. But I don't think you will. And right now, you can get 20% off any new Simply Safe system when you sign up for Fast Protect Monitoring. Just visit simplysafe.com slash witnessed. That's simplysafe.com slash witnessed. And remember, there's no safe like Simply Safe. Just ask my kids. While reporting in Greenville last spring, I met a guy who moved to town years after the murder. But when I mentioned Precious murder, his eyes got big and he jumped right in. He knew the speculation all right. Who she was, what people whispered about Richard, the whole thing. In your experience, it's something that is talked about around town? Yeah, I think anytime that name comes up, I can think of probably five or six times that I've seen him out with somebody, either riding with me or whatever, and he's always pointed out, hey, he's the one that killed his aunt. And, and, and it's that casually, you know, that just off-the-cuff type remark. I don't know how much any of these people actually knew about the case or the inner workings or any details or anything, but once that got into public perception that that was the the story, I, I just think that's easier for people to, you know, that's an interesting thing to say in this case. Nobody that's ever made that remark to me has any firsthand knowledge or anything that would be valuable for investigative purposes to actually solving the crime. I bring up this conversation because it demonstrates the long life of a good rumor. So how do these rumors become Greenville lore? What gives a rumor the oxygen it needs to survive? Well, it helps if it makes some sense, as I suspect this one does to many people who clock Richard's distant affect, his worn sweatpants, and it's got to be appropriately scandalous, as any murder between family members would be. But it should also have the endorsement of someone credible. And that's where a news reporter named Tanya Carter comes in. Tanya also didn't live in Greenville when Presh was murdered. She was more than a thousand miles away up in the Bronx. But not long after it happened, she interviewed with a news director at the local ABC affiliate. She'd heard the story about Presh's murder. And during that job interview, she told the news director that her first priority, if she got the job, would be to solve the case. She got the job. And in 2004, one year after the murder, she and her news director interviewed Charlotte and Richard in their living room. In the video of the interview, Charlotte sits in a small, tufted silk chair. The framing feels kind of awkward. Charlotte facing the camera straight on, while Richard is in the background, reclining in a club chair that's turned to the side, away from the camera. Tanya's focused on Charlotte at first. She asks her how she's been getting sleep. Charlotte says antidepressants. At one point, Tanya says to Charlotte, who, remember, is the one who found Presh dead, quote, you mentioned you see your sister's body all the time. Every day, Charlotte says. What, what is it that you, if you just, so our viewers can be able to feel your pain? Well, I see my sister murdered. And, uh, you know, lying on the floor, a lifeless body. Charlotte tells the reporter she thinks someone on drugs probably killed her sister. Maybe it was someone Presh was trying to help. 
Then, a few seconds later, Tanya turns to Richard, who's still sitting in the background, and she tells him she understands he had an argument with Presh over paying for that wedding brunch. And then she says this. Everyone in the community says you did it, but you didn't mean to do it. Would you like to set the record straight? Everyone in the community says you did it. That's when the interview understandably escalates. Charlotte and Richard tell her to shut off the camera and leave. No, 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 I'm not doing this. Because of what you're doing. No, no, I'm not doing this. Why have you done this? Mm-hmm. I'm doing this, uh-uh. How, how do you sleep at night knowing? He did not do it. Tanya continues speaking in a calm voice and continues to push, saying Richard didn't pass a lie detector test. Deception, she says. No, 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 I will not stand for that. He did not do it. No. Then who did? I have no idea who did it. But my son was at home. I reached out to Tanya to discuss this tape, but she never responded to my multiple requests for a formal interview. We did casually chat on the phone one afternoon, and she told me that she was convinced that Richard and Charlotte were involved in Precious murder. When I listen to this tape, I'm uncomfortable. Because what I'm hearing is someone coming to an interview not to listen, but to accuse. And how did she become so sure? Well, I have emails between Tanya and Precious kids. She'd sent them the list of questions she'd planned to ask Richard and Charlotte, and then ask them for their feedback. So I wouldn't consider this an independent interview per se. Welcome to True Spies, the podcast that takes you deep inside the greatest secret missions of all time. Suddenly out of the dark, it's appeared in Laden. You'll meet the people who live life undercover. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? Vengeance felt good. Seeing these people pay for what they'd done felt righteous. True Spies from Spyscape Studios, wherever you get your podcasts. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Tanya, the TV reporter, wasn't the first person to try and fail to get a confession out of Richard in his own home. Some of my own family members would also try. But before we get there, I think it's helpful to understand them. That is, the people who put the most energy into building this extrajudicial case against Richard. My dad and his two sisters. Precious three kids. Of all of them, I think my Aunt Martha has the most nuanced perspective on Charlotte. Like Charlotte, Martha's the youngest of three. And like Charlotte, she understood what it was like to grow up in the shadow of her older siblings. I don't think it was any surprise to anybody that I was kind of considered the challenge in my parents' home. Martha was a little kid with big feelings in a family where negative emotions were often considered personal failings. So in the grand tradition of misunderstood teenagers, 
she rebelled. She would get picked up by police before she even started high school. There was underage drinking or driving her parents' car without a license, once for driving her parents' car without a license while wearing an orange road cone on her head. The car was a convertible. She had a little bit of a reputation. That uh, filtered out in a community like Greenville to my aunt, to my uncle, to other people. She says Charlotte did try to align with me um, as a fellow victim. She would say negative things to me about Mama, and that was about their growing up. Finally, when I was about in the 10th or 11th grade, I said, I'm not going to be able to talk to you by yourself anymore if you keep talking about Mama. That's it. And it took a couple of times, but she did stop. Charlotte wasn't the only one who saw an opportunity in their dynamic. My grandmother was well aware that Charlotte wasn't always receptive to getting advice from her older sister. But maybe she'd be more likely to take that advice if it came wrapped up in her big-hearted, troubled, youngest child. So Presh would send her to talk to Charlotte about Richard. Remember, Presh wanted to separate them, have Richard move out of his mom's house, be more independent. You give back to your community, you work, you have a job. I was seeing him as getting more and more isolated in his life. As it turns out, my first job after college was I went into social work. And so Mama even further intensified sending me to her house every time I got home. And I was working with with youth, um, you know, troubled youth. And so Mama thought I could maybe make some headway. But it became clear to my aunt that Richard and Charlotte's dynamic wasn't going to change because they actually didn't want it to change. So my Aunt Martha switched tactics, and she began trying to convince Presh to give up, to leave them alone. In my mid-40s, it had escalated to the point that Mama was so frustrated and angry with him, you know, she couldn't let it go. She didn't, she didn't hear that. She just, she didn't hear it. You know, she felt like she had to do something about it. Because it was wrong. (laughs) And she had had it. Because it was wrong. So who decides what's wrong? Well, in our family, Presh did. We were all raised on her values and the belief that we had an obligation to right wrongs, even if wrong should be open to interpretation, as it was in this case, and as it was after Presh's death. Her murder was a tragedy, and one that couldn't be changed. But my dad and his sisters still saw an opportunity for justice, even without police help. So they decided the right thing was for Richard to admit he killed Presh. By this time, all three of Presh's kids were living in different cities, but they each had plans to be in town for yet another cousin's wedding. This one, three months after Presh's murder, We knew we would all be there for that wedding, and this would be a good time to confront because we, at that moment, had all of us were feeling like he did this. My Aunt Anne, the oldest sibling. By this time, Richard had, quote, failed the second lie detector test he'd taken. Police had collected some of his clothes, pairs of shoes, and sent evidence off to the crime lab. And that was about the time Anne tells me she began to suspect the police were throwing their hands in the air, saying, well, we've done all we can. 
So my dad and his sisters came up with their own strategy. They went over to Charlotte's house the morning of the wedding. Charlotte would be at the wedding that night, but Richard had been disinvited. Our extended family suspected him too. My dad says he and his sisters were suspicious that Charlotte, quote, knew Richard was responsible for the murder. And that she was covering up for him. So we went over. The three of us, Roy, Martha, and myself. They sat down with Charlotte in her living room. We told her we wanted to come and talk to her, and we told her that we felt that her son was the one responsible and that we didn't think she was being forthcoming about what she knew, and we wanted her to be truthful about it. What we felt about this murder investigation, we think he actually did this murder. Charlotte calls for Richard. To come into the living room. He just kind of saunters in, swaying from side to side a little bit. Just, you know, coming in, takes a seat. And he sits down. Each one each one of us had our, our spot. We had rehearsed before who, who wanted to say what. And we each told him we felt he was responsible. Finally, I, I, it was my turn. And before I got to the point, Charlotte jumps in. In the middle of this is pretty heated talk we're having here. She goes, would anyone like a Coca-Cola? Just, you know, just ridiculous. So anyway, basically what I said, you know, Mama took her finger, she pointed at you, she said, I have had enough of this. You're going to take care of your mother by getting out of this house, getting a job, living your own life. And with that, he pushed her, is what I think, probably with his finger maybe. So I said, uh, uh, and at any rate, I jumped to the point where well, this is what I thought happened, that he, um, uh, you knocked her down and then you hit her with a candlestick. His reaction was a reaction of no emotion whatsoever. I remember that he wasn't outraged. He's confident. He's relaxed. He's calm. He didn't protest uh, in any sort of vigorous way, he just said, no, I, I didn't do this, or something to that effect. I mean, would you expect any other reaction from him? I, I would have expected some table pounding. If somebody had accused me of murder and I had nothing to do with it, I would have said, this is an outrage. No, I didn't do it. So uh, I remember thinking at the time, boy, that is really damning. But when I hear this, I wonder what he could have done that wouldn't be damning. My dad and his sisters came into this confrontation believing that Richard was guilty. So maybe anything he did would have looked like an expression of that guilt, which means he's damned if he pounds on that table and he's damned if he doesn't. And then there's another wrinkle. As my dad says himself, a lot of Richard's actions could be seen as unusual. And that is, on the one hand, what causes me to think, he could have done it, but on the other hand, as I said earlier, it has consistently caused me to think that's what got him here in the first place. Meaning that when someone's actions are unusual, they're more likely to look guilty. My dad, by the way, has always been the family diplomat. He's still the guy I call for advice on gracefully extricating myself from awkward situations. He's also told me that he's not convinced it was Richard. He thinks that's a good theory. 
But without hard proof, it's still a theory. He is a professional skeptic, after all. So why would he go with his sisters to accuse someone of murder if he didn't really believe it? I asked him this recently. He paused for a while, and then he told me that he thinks at that time he did believe Richard had killed Presh. But he also thought it was important for the three of them to put up a united front as a family. Richard picked up on that dynamic. They had accused both me and my mother of both being liars because they never believed they came over here and they accused me of something. I naturally tried to defend myself. After a while, Roy, he stood up with the two hands behind him and they they marched out they marched off like the ducks at the Peabody Hotel. You know walking out the door and I followed them out the door and I and and oh Roy hollered at me saying, You failed five lie detector tests. I said I didn't take with two of them. What happened with the investigation after that point? Well, um, nothing seemed to be happening. They had no leads, no no suspect, you know. Except maybe the police looking into Richard, she says. Only because the family pushed for him. And um, I thought they had enough circumstantial evidence to take it before the grand jury. I really did. But they never even got close to that. So, you know, it, it was, it went, it just steadily got worse. Although the DA investigator did tell us you can try a case with circumstantial evidence, it's not ideal. But they didn't even have that. Circumstantial evidence would be something of Richard's found at the crime scene, or a witness who saw him near her house. I asked my Aunt Anne how her suspicions affected her relationship with Charlotte. Well, I cut my relationship off, and the way I did it, I wrote her a letter talked about the history of her, you know, and, um, you know, being a part of our lives and all, but that I could not be a part of her life. Charlotte and Richard say that hurts. I don't care how many years it was. I don't understand why they let it go on. And persecuting you was persecuting me. That's right. That's the compassion, Larison, no compassion. And I don't understand that. And, either I, and of course, you know, Roy has always been my heart. My dad. If they had allowed us I've to always loved Roy. And be family back then, we could have all shown each other compassion. But they decided not to. They decided to alienate themselves from us, of which you can't talk to people when they don't want to be around you. This is the only time with a family member I've ever been given the opportunity to speak. And you've listened to me with open ears. And what they should have done was they've let 19 years pass. It's all gone now. The hurt can never be mended. I remember the weekend of this confrontation. I remember what I was reading on the flight down to the wedding, the Da Vinci Code, like half of America. And I remember seeing on CNN during my layover that both John Ritter and Johnny Cash had died. I remember the backyard wedding tent at our cousin's house, and of course, the food. But if anyone told me about the confrontation, I've long since forgotten. I suspect they didn't. 
I was my dad's oldest child, but I was still his child. And this was all adult affairs. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then-unheard-of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. Of all of Precious Kids, my aunt Anne pursued Richard the longest. She's the one who collected all the investigative documents she could. Those binders I now have. But it wasn't just collecting. It's taking notes, doing her own analyses. Like, she wrote up details about Richard. What I considered a profile, and I sent it to this psychiatrist in Houston, and I asked him to give me a profile. What was he really like? What could he do or would do? And it's excellent what he wrote. Have you read that yet? I haven't read it yet. I went through the garbage at their house. And uh, I wanted to sample one thing of his handwriting, which I do do have. You got that? Okay, good. And then... um, Uh, I just thought, you know, maybe there would be something in there. Um, What, uh, why did you want that handwriting sample? Well, you never know. Uh, You know, it would be my own evidence if I found something to match it to, or you just grab anything you think could help, you know, in a situation like that. That's what I was thinking, but going through the garbage didn't show anything. Anna's in many ways a textbook oldest child. Poised, charming, on the move. When I was growing up, the wood floors in their home were always freshly pine salt. The glass sliding doors, smudge-free. They had an aerobics room in that house, and she was as dedicated to the practice as Jane Fonda herself. She is still, even in her mid-70s, stunning. And like her mother, she does not easily retreat. I think this has made the lack of resolution in Precious' case harder on her than her siblings. So when she tells me she's gone through Richard's trash, it makes me sad. If the police needed a handwriting sample, they'd get it themselves. So I wonder what the strategy is here. Is it about building a case? Or is it about doing something, anything, to avoid sitting there feeling helpless? Victoria Blue Lightning Snake entered my aunt's lives a few years after the murder. As you might have gathered from a last name like Blue Lightning Snake, Victoria had a specialized area of expertise, clairvoyant abilities. She talked to dead people. A cousin in North Carolina had met her and gave my aunt's her number. By this time, the private investigator had wrapped up his report but he hadn't brought in more detail about what happened to Presh. But Presh knew exactly what happened to her. If only she could tell us. And according to Victoria, she could. Victoria died of COVID during the pandemic. Otherwise, we'd be hearing from her here. But I do have one audio tape of Victoria and two male psychics describing Presh's murder. The tape itself is low quality, hard to understand in places. 
But from what I could discern, there's a point in which they all become very fixated on the tree in Precious' yard, the one near where police had found Precious' lawn chair and coffee cup. Victoria says she sees the tree. Then the others jump in. Oh, I see it. I do too. It's kind of like a tent revival where one person catches the spirit and then everyone falls down around them. Eventually, Victoria would paint a very detailed picture of Presh's murder. According to Anne's notes, Victoria told them that Presh was killed in the kitchen. It was an accident at first, that Presh and Richard had been arguing. Presh stepped backwards and slipped. Then in a panic, she says he moved her body to the living room and bludgeoned her there. I want to point out that this is very close to the version of events my aunt spelled out back when she confronted Richard before that wedding, long before she even met Victoria. So it's likely Victoria was familiar with those details before the reading. And again, this is a psychic's hypothesis. Richard has never been arrested or charged for this murder. But Victoria made an impression on my aunt's. She told them Presh would come to her at night, sit on her bed, and talk. And she relayed stories that Presh told her about her life, her marriage. I met Victoria. We had a big family reunion six years ago. And when she came up and spoke to me as though she knew everything about me, I was uneasy. And even though I wasn't surprised that Charlotte hadn't been invited, it was still strange to have Victoria there and not the great aunt I'd known for 40 years. Last spring, I interviewed my Aunt Anne at her home in Tennessee. Both my dad and their other sister Martha were going to be there, too. I was excited to get everyone in the same room together, telling stories, talking about Presh. I really love being with the three of them. They've got such a rich history together, so many great stories, or more accurately, a few great stories they tell so many times. The story's always told the same way, regardless of who's telling it. But what they don't talk about the same way is what happened after Precious murder. They each have a different take on it. You described yesterday your sort of research and your efforts Mm -hmm. um, as an obsession. Mm -hmm. What drove the obsession? I think um, to, I think it's kind of a tribute to both of my parents that um, they would expect this, that, you know, they believed in truth and justice and honesty. Also, as, as mama would say, Put yourself in the other person's shoes. You know, think about it from another person's point of view. But the version of Presh that my dad has let guide him is the joyful one, the one who knew how to focus on the big picture. I think each of us has to deal with the trauma of this uh, in our own way. What I did was to try to focus on the positive, and the positive for me were all the great memories of Mama. The, the great stories, and what she did for us as a family. And I just, I find a lot more peace there than I think I would have in pursuing what 
I, I fear may always be an unsolved crime. I think that Mama would have been more inclined to take the approach I've taken. And how would Presh have felt if there were evidence pointing toward Richard? I think she would have wanted justice done. I do. I remember being fully committed initially to trying to get to the bottom of what happened. And I wasn't focused on him more than any other possibilities. I began to feel like Ann and Martha were convinced for what were certainly in their minds justifiable reasons. Convinced Richard was responsible. And they seemed to be on a single path to pull together whatever support was needed to substantiate that conclusion. Then I really began to feel like my doubts were getting in their way when, when a psychic got involved. I think that caused me to lose even more enthusiasm while I think at the time it, I think, caused the two of them become yet more enthusiastic. And so I think that's when I decided to step back. Do I think it'll ever be solved? No, I don't think it'll ever be solved. My Aunt Anne lands on the opposite side. She thinks it'll be solved. I think so. Mm-hmm. I do. I do. What do we need to solve it? Uh, we, we need to show by circumstantial evidence that he did it. We're not, we don't really have any evidence. I keep going back to something. It's something Greg, Precious foster son, told me. And over the last few months of reporting this, it just keeps popping back up in my head. From his point of view, there was this really sincere, big push for evidence in the beginning, a push he was supportive of. I remember just, I remember everyone, we've got to find evidence. We have to prove that he did this. We have got to, you know. And um, I began personally to question whether proving he did it was the same thing as finding the truth. And, you know, I don't know who did it. And, um, you know, I cannot commit to the theory that he did because um, they haven't, they just haven't produced the evidence. Um, and you can prove something is true and it be false, but you can prove it's true. Um, depending on how you assemble your evidence. I've never consulted a psychic, but I can relate to this feeling of just desperately needing to get a hold of Presh. After all, she was there. She saw what happened. And unlike the person who killed her, she'd probably be willing to talk. And ironically, examining her death the last several months has made her feel almost alive again. Like she's there in her house, just waiting on me to call her. I found myself trying to put myself in her shoes on the morning of her death. Like I was trying to time out how long, say if she were sitting outside that morning, it would have taken her to get into the house. But of course I don't have access to her house. So I used what I did have, which is an office in Soho. And I went off 20-year-old memories moving furniture to replicate the distance of her lawn chair to the sunroom door, 
the sunroom door to the telephone. And then we hit a timer. And to add an extra dose of realism, I slowed down. You know, like an 85-year-old woman. Yeah, very high school production of 12 Angry Men. And then we did this several times. Start at the lawn chair, hit the timer, get to the telephone. Once like the door was already propped open. Once like she had to open it herself. And then Lindsay, our producer, looked up and said, what are you doing? We can't prove anything with this. It feels like you're just grasping at this thing that you that feels like it could be it could be so easy and so close just figure it out and step into her shoes am i i when i'm looking through this stuff like the ache that i want to talk to her is is so strong at times And I want to talk to her because being so close to her makes me miss her. And of course, I also want to talk to her because I'm like, you know, like, you know what happened. And it feels at this moment like she's not that far away. It's hard because I know the truth exists. But like Anne, I don't know how to get at it. Charlotte died on July 21st, about two weeks after I last saw her. time on Witnessed, Devil in the Ditch. It's not really all that often that uh, we get to hear from the one who's died in their own worship service. They were waiting till her death and then they'll come in and, and begin the, uh, the accusation. That's what we'd heard for years and years, wasn't it? That, that he was going to be arrested. What did you think when I told you I wanted to do this podcast? Um... Unlock all episodes of Witnessed, Devil in the Ditch, ad-free right now by subscribing to The Binge, our new podcast channel. Not only will you immediately unlock all episodes of this show, but you'll get binge access to an entire network of other great true crime and investigative podcasts, all ad-free. Plus, on the first of every month, subscribers get a binge drop of a brand new series. That's all episodes, all at once. Unlock your listing now by clicking subscribe at the top of the Witnessed Devil in the Ditch show page on Apple Podcasts, or visit getthebinge.com to get access wherever you get your podcasts. Witnessed is a production of Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment. Devil in the Ditch was reported and hosted by me, Larison Campbell. Lindsay Kilbride is the senior producer, and Sheba Joseph is the associate producer. The story editor is Sean Flynn. Studio recording by Ewan Lai Tremuen and Sheba Joseph. Sound design, mixing, and original music by Garrett Tiedemann. Additional music by APM and Blue Dot Sessions. Additional field recording by Johnny Kaufman and Ambriel Crutchfeld. Fact-checking by Ben Kalin. Special thanks to Emily Martinez and our operations team. Doug Slaywin, Aaliyah Papes, Destiny Dingle, Ashley Warren, and Sabina Mara. The executive producers at Campside Media are Josh Dean, Vanessa Gregoriadis, Adam Hoff, and Matt Scher.
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.